So I'm writing a novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive several lovely perks, like access to bonus podcast recordings such as the one I'm going to do all about how I recently sold a sword and sorcery short story. And if you're not a patron already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. While writing my sword and sorcery novel, I have been thinking a lot about pastiche and homage and just the whole idea of trying to write like someone, you know, like them, versus writing as they did and all that kind of thing. And this got me thinking about author Scott Oden. Scott is a lovely fellow that, yes, I see around the Whetstone Tavern Discord. <laughs> and his name invariably seems to come up every time online, there or elsewhere. I have seen discussions of who would write a really good Robert E. Howard pastiche who has written one, actually, pardon me, but there's been a lot of discussions about further ones due to recent developments in the wacky world of publishing. So yeah. Anyway, I invited Scott on the show primarily with that in mind, but also because he recently got a two-book publishing deal I thought would be interesting to hear about, and we got into a whole bunch of other stuff that uh, really showed off Scott's thoughtfulness, intelligence, experience, and just personal depth, you know? I think he's a great guy, and I want to introduce him to you if you don't know him already. So, if you do, spend some time with him, why don't you? Come on. <laughs> Jeez, Louise. Okay, Oliver, let's uh, go to the interview with Scott Oden. And here we are with Scott. Hi, Scott. Hey, Oliver. I made a loud noise with my desk, but you know what? Yeah. I'm going to leave that in there as punishment <laughs> for myself, the uh, audio equivalent of rubbing my nose in it. So, Scott, <laughs> uh, I screwed up. You you don't have to. I hope you'll forgive the softball uh, of this question, but I really want more people to know you. And as basic as it is, I think it's interesting to know how an author's writing journey began. Were you writing stories as soon as you could hold a crayon in your hand? Or was there like a big moment of epiphany later in life? Like what happened? Like roughly speaking, how did you, you wind up deciding like, yeah, I'm, I'm a writer. I'm going to write. It was April of 1981. I actually know exactly when it was. I was 14 years old and I had picked up a copy of Writer's Digest off the rack. And the there was an article about people making money as a writer. And I tried writing my imitation Conan stories up till that. And a little light bulb went off. And I'm like, I can make money as a writer? I can. Be I wanted to be either a professional dungeon master or a wizard because I was really deep in D&D &D when I was 14. And they said, hey, you can be a writer. I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> and that was when it started. Was I was 14 years old. Wrote my first story in about a month and sent it off to Weird Tales. That's awesome. Got a rejection. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's how it goes, right? 
I do feel like anybody who gets their first story accepted, I mean, maybe they're blessed and every story afterwards is accepted and they ride up to the heavens. But I do I wonder if that's kind of like, um, that might throw you a little bit, give you weird expectations. Well, see, that's the curse, is every novel I've ever written has been accepted. <laughs> every short story has been rejected. So. Dear, dear, that's, that's very curious. That is I, weird. I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm sure you've thought long and hard about it. Do you have any... If, you know, what, what do you think? What do you think's up with that? <laughs> I'm able to bullshit longer in long form. So, uh, short stories are too concise. I like to to pad out stuff. I like to describe things. I'm a child of Tolkien, <laughs> who is kind of short by modern standards. I mean, I know, I know. Like, take a shot. Somebody who likes SMS complains about phone book length fantasy novels, but still, yeah. uh, it, it is funny how he's come around from being the example of like the big. The, you know, the, the, the smaller, older phone book, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and no longer, really, at all. Yeah, and I've tried and tried to write... I want to write, like, a, a cozy fantasy story. Yes, and, yes. Now, listeners won't know what that means necessarily, so let me just tee that up for you, if I may. Sure. Uh, folks, if you remember my interview, uh, if you listened to that one with Nat Webb about publishing a magazine, and his magazine was called Wingraph, which was all about cozy fantasy which i think he described as something kind of like the uh, the quieter moments of the hobbit to bring it back to tolkien and uh yeah you submitted a cozy story too nat didn't you well i i yeah actually i guess i did i wrote one i actually posted it on the the whetstone discord and he was like no no <laughs> just no <laughs> Wasn't it kind of, my apologies, I didn't get a chance to read it yet, but wasn't it kind of actually cozy except for one key moment where a dog got killed and it was like... He didn't get killed, he just died, got... Man. He didn't get killed, he got shot with a crossbow. I mean, well... And it was, a, better, it was okay. a puppy, it wasn't a dog, it was a puppy. So. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it, the descriptions weren't cozy. Uh, you know, I'm in the middle of my, my, okay. my dark fantasy epic, so there was nothing cozy mm. about it, so... But he's like, well, it's well written, but it's not cozy. I'm like, oh, man. my mom would have been so proud. Uh, well, there's still time. I don't know. I don't know. I'll try it someday. But but that that's my goal is to, to write a cozy short story. <laughs> so. Um, so, okay. So moving on from that moment of epiphany as an as a adolescent, right? It's no secret. Men of Bronze was your breakthrough novel. Yes. Why do you think... That was the book that got your career started because I was reading on your blog how you did take a crack at like a cyberpunk, you know, book at one point. Yeah. There's some other stuff, obviously, as well. What uh, what do you what do you think it was about Men of Bronze? Uh, probably because it was the first one I finished. Oh well, that would help. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I kept getting rejections from agents, and you know, I tried agents first before going to publishers. Every agent was like, "I can't sell this. I don't know how to sell this." You know. Ancient Egypt doesn't sell, which, you know, is BS. Ancient Egypt sells extremely well. Yeah, that's a bit weird. Yeah. Uh, finally, somebody's like, oh, man, I'm an, I'm an Egyptophile. I'll take it. <laughs> so, and, <laughs> and that was at Medallion Press, yes, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they threw sacks of money at it. They threw somewhere short of $250,000 in marketing. Wow. And this was in 2005. You know, they flew me to New York, wined and dined the whole nine yards. But they were such a new company, they couldn't get the book into bookstores. Oh, no. And, I mean, it had the cover of Publishers Weekly, but you couldn't go down to Barnes & Noble and buy a copy. So, it it sold better than most first novels, 
but it didn't sell well enough to get noticed. Though it got noticed by an editor at Thomas Dunn Books, whose wife lived twenty minutes was born twenty minutes away from where I live. So he kept track of all of local writers. You know, if somebody popped up on the radar, he'd go and, and talk to them. So he came to one of my book signings locally, and we chatted and hit it off. And when I got ready to move to fantasy, I dropped him a line, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I'll buy four of your books. Had no idea what I was going to write. So he bought four books untitled and said, hey, why don't you uh, try something like, what if Robert E. Howard had written about assassins in the Middle Ages? I'm like, okay, let's let's go with that. that sounds yeah. good, yeah. What the hell? <laughs> and that was The Lion of Cairo. Oh, yeah. And, but, yeah, he, he's, that was my first uh, interaction with an actual New York editor. Uh, he, he's an interesting fellow. He's still my editor to this day. So Where did uh, Memnon fit? Because that was between those two. Books, Memnon right? was a standalone biographical novel, kind of in the same uh, style as the uh, Harold Lamb biographical nonfiction, except it was fiction. It was actually spawned by a line, like a half a paragraph, in Harold Lamb's Alexander of Macedon. And the paragraph, it was about Alexander the Great finding a bracelet in his concubine's possession that was engraved on the inside that said, for the love of Memnon of Rhodes. And that was where the novel came from. Oh, very cool. Uh, it turns out Memnon was the only person he was hesitant to face in battle oh. uh, because he had lived with them. He had lived in Macedonia when Alexander was a boy. He knew all of their secrets. He knew all of their, how they fought. And he was hesitant to fight him on an open battlefield. Luckily, the Persians being Persians, didn't trust him enough to lead an army, so they put satraps in charge, and they messed it up. And by the time he actually did take command, you couldn't stop Alexander. He was on a roll. So, But there's maybe 12 mentions of him, of Memnon, in ancient sources, and that's all I had to go on. So, Well, lots of room to create your own thing then. So Yeah, yeah but I had to create my own thing that looked like it belonged. It's I, I the best analogy I come up with is art restoration. I like that. You have a painting, you know bits and pieces of the painting, you know the style of the painting. So you have to fill in all the missing details and make it look like it belongs. I really like that. And it makes me think of something I was reading on your blog earlier uh, while preparing for this about how you you said when you were younger and you were kind of coming into meta bronze and then on after that that you had felt that world building was a weak point for you. So, hey, let's do historical because it's all, the world's already built. Uh, yeah. And then you just the hard way. Wow. Uh, that's, that's, not, that's not how that goes. Man, the naivete of youth. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, how bad was the learning curve with that? It wasn't as bad as, as it could have been. Luckily, I had some decent books from the library. I had access to, it was an older version, but it was a Cambridge Ancient History. And if you know anything about those, you know they're like 24 volumes. So I was able to get the best research I could find at the time. And let me tell you, from a little small town in North Alabama, that's saying something. Because I now have more ancient history books than I had than my library has. So it got me started, and this was pre-internet, so I couldn't just go Google it. But just getting the uh, interlibrary loan to send different books on ancient Egypt. And I discovered that though I could not 
make a world. I could put together puzzle pieces of a world that exists and describe it in such a way that it seems real. Mm. You know, ancient historical novels are nothing but fantasy that went to college. <laughs> That's it. Nothing in them is historically accurate. People will go on and on. They'll start fights over historical accuracy. Nothing is historically accurate. We don't know how they lived. We know bits and pieces. We know some of the high points. I always use like a, if you've ever read Stephen Pressfield's Gates of Fire, it's an extremely good book on Thermopylae novel. Probably 99% of it he made up. The Spartan training program, we don't know what the Spartan training program was. We know its name. We have some indication it was tough. He took his Marine Corps background and turned it into a Spartan training program. Yeah, I was waiting for that. Yeah. <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> he, to me, he pioneered something called cross-pollinating research. If you don't know enough about a horse culture, you find another horse culture and steal from them. <laughs> I, I think that's honestly a very um, sane and sober appraisal of historical adventure. Yeah. Because it's just so weird to me when people get super hung up on the details and being quote-unquote accurate, and how they attempt to prove whether they are or aren't, yeah. as if the thing's meant to be a textbook. Yeah. As if that's the purpose and not telling, like, a great story. You know, it's very strange. But I guess you get people literally watching, like, The Queen right now and being like, hey, hang on, <laughs> this seems a little sensationalized. It's like, yeah, what do you think? <laughs> well, see, and that's, that's part of the problem is they'll watch media and think that it's real. They'll watch Rome and think that's actually what happened. Hmm. I've gotten into a lot of arguments online with people who would watch, well, to use a kind of timely reference, most of the movies with ancient Egyptians don't actually feature Egyptian actors. They feature oh, well, yeah. white dudes. So you'll have one group of people who believe that ancient Egyptians were white because they saw Gerard Butler in an Egyptian movie. Then you'll have, you know, in the opposite category, you'll have people that think Cleopatra was black because she's African. And it's, it's no, she was a Macedonian Greek who lived in Africa. <laughs> there is a, a complete difference. Yes, she was the only one that could speak the language of her family line, but she was, she's described in several Roman texts. She was pale-skinned. Yeah, it's weird how that goes, I guess. I mean, what can, what can I say? It's nothing new. People um, take their prejudices and their, their notions and apply them on the past all the time. But when it's filtered through a fantasy novel <sighs> and people try to hold it up as, as text, as, as a... Wow, well, anyway. I feel like we could chew that on that for a while. But it does bring me to your website, which I noticed, actually, since I last looked at it, has been uh, jazzed up quite a bit. Yeah, I, I went to town on it because I'm trying to... I was procrastinating. I have a book to write, so let me fix my website. <laughs> Hey, why not, right? Fix the website, clean the kitchen. It's always a good thing to do when you got a butcher, right? Um, but I, I like the tagline that you put underneath your name right up in the header, uh, which reads, where history meets fantasy, which certainly, you know, evokes sword and sorcery for me, a guy who's very deep into it right now. I myself know you entirely from the sword and sorcery scene, but I'm curious, like, would you consider yourself, you know, an author of sword and sorcery? Like, how do you feel about the term? What's your relationship to it? Uh, I love the term. I am also an author of Sword and Sorcery. My primary tag is historical fantasy. That's what I call myself. I've, With the exception of the Conan pastiche I've written, I've never written a traditional sword and sorcery story. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Probably because I suck at short stories, but you know. So. 
Um, so actually, do you mind uh, elaborating on that not a little bit? What was that Conan pastiche? I, I probably heard the story on the server, but we can't assume everybody listening knows. Well, in a couple of years ago, about 2019, Frederick Malmberg, who owned at the time Cabinet uh, Entertainment, had relicensed the Conan comics to Marvel, and they were going to do a Conan the Barbarian and a Conan, the Savage Sword of Conan. So he wanted fiction in the back of each one, and so I had gotten wind of this and shamelessly worked any connection I had between myself and Frederick Malmberg to convince him to, you know, beg that I get to do one of them. It doesn't matter which one. Let me do one of them. And he heard it. Uh, the way I hear it, it was Rusty Burke that tipped it in my favor. Because, <laughs> so, you know, they've worked together for years on different projects. Uh, Rusty was a big fan of Men of Bronze. And if you read Men of Bronze, it, you can see that it has Conan's DNA all over it. So they gave me a shot at writing a 12-part novella that would be serialized in the back of Savage Sword of Conan. And they gave me a couple of weeks to write it, and I went into my writing shack. This is my writing shack. And I hammered out 12 1,500-word segments. And I had Howard Andrew Jones read over it, and he helped, you know, smooth the transitions into it. And I, I tried my best to channel my inner Robert E. Howard. Most pastiche is not true pastiche. It's actually homage, because they don't write in the style of the person they're writing about, or the, the character. So for it to be true pastiche, and I'm pedantic about this, it has to be written in the same style as the original. And to my knowledge, I'm the only person that ever tried that and pulled it off from what I've been told. Well, actually, that brings me to what was going to be my next question, you know, because I have seen your name come up more than once in discussions of what currently working authors should be called upon to write new Conan novels. Uh, no shade on Sterling there with the new Conan uh, coming out soon. Uh, but uh, yeah, and the reason for that is, yeah, it's been said, you, you do a bang up job of writing an approximation of Robert E. Howard's voice. Now, I have not had the good fortune to read the uh, pastiche you were just describing. But I'd like to know more. Like, how, how have you approached writing that voice in the past? And how would you, whether it was your first crack at what became Men in Bronze or, or the pastiche more recently, and how would you define Robert E. Howard's voice? Like, what, what makes it? Okay. We're going to pause. I know, that was a lot. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm just, let me, because this has several parts. <laughs> All right. I define Robert E. Howard's voice as a very active, vibrant style. On the surface, it can look purple, but he actually makes a lot of his words do double duty. Uh, he never, as far as I could tell, just put a word in there simply to use it. You know, everything, almost every word of description he uses either adds to the emotion, the setting, or the color. There's not a great deal of character development through his stories. Conan is the same in The Hour of the Dragon as he is in Tower of the Elephant. He's the same fighter. You know, he has the same temper. He has the same temperament. Now, he ages and he starts having, you know, he, he's not quite as quick to anger. I, I'll say that in Hour of the Dragon as he is in Tower of the Elephant. But then there are points where he is. You know, it, it's, it's really strange. He doesn't change. But that's part of the beauty of Conan. He does not change. You know what you're going to get when you read a Conan story. 
And from the minute we pick up a pen, we're told that every story has to have an arc of some kind. The character needs to change from beginning to end. There has to be something that changes. Howard proved us wrong. Conan never changes. He will either succeed in what he's doing or he'll fail and still get by on the skin of his teeth. He himself never changes. So that almost timeless mythic quality of a character, that to me is just the cornerstone of of Howard. All of his characters are like that. They're all almost mythic archetypes of the type of character that they're playing. That's why it's so easy sometimes to slip, uh, say, like one of the Crusader stories. It's very easy to turn it into a Conan story because it's the same archetype. You know, he's, he's presenting the same type of character, but in a different setting. So that's my, my answer for the first part. And I forgot the second part of the question. <laughs> no worries, no worries. I was just asking, you know, how, how have you approached writing that voice in the past, whether it was the run-up to Men of Bronze or the passage more recently? And then the other was how would you define Howard's voice, which I believe you just did quite well. Okay, so how I approach it, I try to get a hold of the same source material that Howard would have had. So... Luckily, there's a website that lists the books that he had in his possession when he passed away, and every book that he'd mentioned in his letters. So I've actually been able to find a few of those. Most helpful have been Harold Lamb. Harold Lamb's The Crusades is pretty much a textbook for how the Hyborian Age works. You know, Howard's fantasy, he wrote thinly veiled historical fiction. He got an People will debunk this theory, but this is my theory. He got rejected by adventure so many times with historical fiction that he decided he's going to write historical fiction for his best-selling market, which is Weird Tales. So he had to divorce himself from being anything like historically accurate and throw magic into it. And that's because he's writing these at the same time. He's writing his Crusader stories, which are some of his best stories, at the same time that he's creating Conan. The Crusader stories keep getting rejected. You know, he can sell them to Oriental Stories, which is Weird Tales' sister magazine, but he can't sell them to Adventure, which was what he was trying to do. So he takes everything he knows and puts it into a blender hits start, and the Hyborian Age comes pouring out of it. So all of his his work that he's done to read about the, the Celts, the, the, the Irish, the Gaels, the Norse, all of that goes into the Hyborian Age. And he does not change a lot of the texture of this. Conan, even though he is a Sumerian barbarian, is very much a Celt. It's, it's in his DNA. And when he wrote the Hyborian Age essay, he made sure to link the two. The Sumerians are the forebears of the Celts. Although coming back to that blender you mentioned, yeah. right? If I remember correctly, the Sumerians is a name from actual history, but it's it not is. from anywhere near the Celts. No, from like... it's from the Black Sea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't really know. I think he just liked the name. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Because, <laughs> he, you know, he had some access. He didn't have access to primary source material, but he had access to really decent translations like Stanley Lane Poole. Lane Poole was a historian who he wrote very purple histories. <laughs> He wrote a history of, of Saladin that I know Howard had. <laughs> and uh, Rusty, actually Rusty Burt, uh, when I was writing The Lion of Cairo, sent me pages that he had photocopied from his copy of that. Because I, I had this theory that there are sections of the story Gates of Empire that actually appear almost verbatim in the historical 
a record of William of Tyre. And I could not figure out how, because I know William of Tyre was not translated into English until the 1940s. So he couldn't have gotten a hold of that because he didn't speak or read a foreign language that I know of. I was able to find it in Harold Lamb and in Stanley Lane Poole. And it reads just almost exactly verbatim to what they had put in their translations. Because Harold Lamb read French. And as far as I know, Lane Poole did also. Right. And I mean, that's, you know, it's been said in many places before here. Um, you know, how Robert E. Howard loved Howard Lamb. Yeah. Uh, and said the hell out of his work, which reading the uh, Khalid the Cossack stories uh, earlier this year, I could definitely see. Uh, those photocopied pages, did they have like, you know, Robert E. Howard's like annotations? Like, were they in the corners? Was that? How handy were those? I mean, that sounds very interesting to read. Well, the the one I had didn't have any annotations. This was just uh, Rusty's copy of the same book. Oh, I don't know oh. where the book got to after he passed away. I think Dr. Howard sent a lot of stuff off to some of his friends, but somewhere out there is a copy of The Crusades by Harold Lamb that probably has annotations from... And I went and got the exact same copy that he would have. I actually found the... It's a two-volume set, and I needed the second volume, so I was able to, to really get it for a decent price. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. And so, so, okay, so same primary sources. Same primary sources. Approach it not as fantasy. I don't think Howard approached his stuff as fantasy. He approached it as historical fiction with a twist of the weird. Uh, so I do the same thing. And I think that's where a lot of other Conan authors had gone sort of sideways, is they approached it as fantasy and would throw in fantasy tropes. A lot of fantasy tropes have no place in sword and sorcery. Like a discussion I saw online about Dark Lords. There are no Dark Lords in Sword and Sorcery. There are no Sauron figures. uh, Not even good old Thothamon there? No. When we meet Thothamon, he is a slave. He has made a mistake and got screwed over and is now enslaved to a, a arrogant Aquilonian. And apparently he can't work his magic without his ring. Yes, and you know what? You, you do a good job reminding me that this is important to look at Howard's stories. Yes. Not say... You know, um, I think Carter and DeCant were probably the first people to try and turn Thothamon into more of a Saturday morning cartoon villain, yeah. uh, Dark Lord, I guess, kind of thing. So, yeah, and they yeah. really went with it in the, the comic books. Now, I've never actually read anything but Savage Sword. I never read the old Conan the Barbarian comic. Yeah, the Marvel uh, yeah. regular line. Yeah, I never read those. Savage Sword is where I started. Yeah, yeah. a lot of people start with those. I, I, I was, I guess, too old at the time. I started reading the... Ace uh, editions when I was about 11 years old. So I was already, I had this freakishly good reading ability, uh, but it was offset by the uh, the fact that I can't see numbers, so I can't do math. Are <laughs> <laughs> oh, you win some, you lose some. Crom giveth, crom taketh away. <laughs> oh dear. But yeah, yeah, well, I mean, the fantasy trope of the Dark Lord for yeah. sure. Uh, you know, is there anything else that comes to mind? I, I feel like the chosen one is definitely not something. Not, yeah, he didn't do chosen ones, and he didn't. Yeah, didn't he? Didn't really do anything about saving the world. Even in Hour of the Dragon, he wasn't so much saving the world as he was getting back what he had rightfully stolen. Yeah, it still felt personal. Yeah, even if the uh, greater setting of the whole story was much bigger than normal. Yeah, it was. You know, you stole something from me that I stole fair and square, so I'm going to get get it back. <laughs> <laughs> I think it helped a lot to be 
a historical fiction author previously. Instead of making stuff up, it's the same thing applies like we were talking about before. Instead of art restoration, it's art forger. <laughs> I like it. And so you, you steal bits and pieces from the same places and you create a fake Howard. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully, cool. if you do it right, you can't see the seams. The other thing is word choice. Howard was very particular with word choice. So I got a hold of some really old thesauruses <laughs> uh, just to make sure that I always have a source of some of the same words that were common when he was writing. Now, he had you know a freakishly large vocabulary himself, and... So I made sure to surround myself with some of the same authors, some of the same technical bits, even down to the same words. And the rest of it is, I think, and this, it always sounds arrogant when I say it, but it's, he grew up in a small southern town. I grew up in a small southern town. Actually, Cross Plains is bigger than the town I grew up in. I had brothers and sisters, but I'm the youngest of five, and they were all, for the most part, out of the house. My oldest brother is coming up on 70. So, you know, I was left alone. I was sickly as a child. I had asthma. Couldn't get out and run around, so I had to, to read. And that, to me, it's a shared background. You can fake the words and you can fake the research, but it's really hard to fake the sense. The sense of impending doom, the sense of, uh, yeah, I mean, it sounds weird. Okay, this is going to be a long one. <laughs> you know, Howard killed himself when his mother entered her, her final stage. Everybody, thanks to DeCamp, thinks that this was some kind of weird, edible thing. Yeah, just to hang on for a second. Sure. For, for listeners who, who aren't sure what oh, I'm yeah. referring to, uh, yeah, Elfred DeCamp was one of the guys who did those uh, Ace uh, Conan novels I've on the podcast before, which are highly contentious for a bunch of reasons that they mess around with the stories and put them in order, blah, blah, but they're also why a lot of people know about Conan in the first place, so you, you win some, you lose some. Uh, and Sprague to Camp, I want to say it was around 1980-ish, around that period, he wrote a biography of uh, Howard. Uh, I but think it, it was, was actually a little really... earlier than that. I think it was in the, oh, was I think it was in okay. the 70s. And he... Okay, maybe, maybe the late 70s. Anyway, yeah. well, I'm being pedantic, pardon me. The point is that he, he wrote a biography around then yeah. uh, that was uh, maybe a bit of a hack job. He, he, he definitely came at it with an agenda and sought people who could reinforce that agenda and only took from them what worked for him. And it was to basically, yeah, Paint Howard is kind of like a, I mean, his, you know, his words were they kind of a crazy loner or whatever, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. I forget his actual word. It was some weird phrase that he used to describe him. Something about psychosis. Yeah. Like he, he was engaged in art for was kind, but with a man's life. And I mean, yeah. some of his original stories for the Conan stuff, I think it was actually more Lynn Carter than him. Some of them weren't bad. I enjoyed him when I was a kid. I enjoy him now if I read him again, but I would much rather have pure Howard. But when he wrote this biography, he had already made up his mind that Howard had some kind of Oedipal complex, where his mother was concerned. Even though Novel and Price, who knew him, was like, no, it wasn't Oedipal. He, he was taking care of his mother. Even though Dad was a doctor, Dad was always gone taking care of all of his patients because this was back when the doctor visited you. So he would be gone for a week or two at a time. So it was Howard's job to take care of his parent, his mother. 
And in today's psychology, I actually think he had something called caregiver syndrome. When you're taking care of someone, you get so wrapped up in the idea of taking care of them that when they start to pass away, you can't understand what they're going to do without you. And there's a, it used to be a lot larger occurrence of suicide amongst caregivers outside of a hospital situation. Uh, luckily, they've, they've, identified this as a as a as a problem. And the only reason I bring it up is I did the same thing. I took care of my parents. So this was before I had the chance to to write the stories. I took care of both of my parents. They both died in my arms within 6 months of each other. So I understand the darkness. I was able to avoid his outcome, though I still I still do not remember anything from 2011 till 2014. I have, a, thank God for Facebook memories, because apparently I was a wordy motherfucker back then. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I, yeah, I don't worry about it. <laughs> but I was ranting and railing against God. I don't remember writing this stuff, but it was really good stuff. So, <laughs> uh, I didn't actually come back to myself until 2014, and I'd gotten a note that my sister was dying. And that was what brought me back. It's hard to write Howard if you've had a peaceful life because you don't quite understand what drives his characters. And it's the same thing that drove him. And it's the, none of us will get out of here alive. Let me make the largest mark I can while I can. And for him, it was writing. For his characters, it's, you know, railing against the whatever the coming doom might be depending on the character. Making the yeah. most of it. Uh, you're making me think of um, Conan's speech uh, in uh, the uh, yeah. King of the Black Coast there. Or basically, I, I, I haven't read it in a while, but some A character within it is basically like, what if it's all simulation? Uh, what if it's all illusion? And he's like, what and if? I'm part of the illusion. <laughs> I'm going to live yeah. as hard as I can. I, I live, yeah, I love, I, I slay, I, and I am content. content. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. I'll leave the yeah. biggest mark. And saying. that's... You know, characters like Brand McMorn have more of a purpose to their life than maybe Conan had. You know, Brand McMorn is trying to save his people. Howard was trying to save his people. You can see the, the little parallels in all of his characters. You know, he is, uh, you know, to me, he is every one of his characters. Do you feel that you are your character? Sometimes I'm like, God, I hope not. But, <laughs> but yeah, there is a part of me in all of my characters. So uh, I think that's unavoidable. I, I don't I don't think you can write something without finding a bit of yourself coming from You have to put something of you. So, so you understand them. There has to be something of yourself in them. I notice as I get older, all my characters get older. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, I, I wrote, um, not to talk about me, but, you know, relevant to off of what you're saying, uh, my second novel was a coming-of-age story about a teenager, and I wrote that in my early 30s, in part because I was like, I'm going to start forgetting what the hell this was yeah. even like. I, if I, if I want to write the story, i got to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was a feeling of, get on with it, man, before you're 50, and you're trying to remember what it was like to be, you know, 17. And just, See, no, uh, I've never been able to write anything like that. Everything I've ever written is some kind of escapist adventure. I can't well, I've never tried writing anything close to real life. You know, I mean, we're all drawn to what we want to what we want to write, and uh, I mean, you're, you write what you want to write. And I mean, it's you know, it's got you've you've sold every book you've tried to pitch, right? Which is more yeah, than I can say. <laughs> With all of my if, genre if, hopping, if there's a book of mine that hadn't appeared, it's because I pulled it before I ever finished it, which was stupid yeah. sometimes. But you know, 
You go with your gut. Or learning to go along. Oh man, but, uh, <laughs> I do have a graceful trans. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a graceful transition with You're this. Fine. My apologies. This question went a lot deeper. I, I was quite interested in everything I had to say, but now I'm left just having to go into <laughs> the wheel because what I was what I was going to do was. Um, and thank you for all of that. I really appreciate it. Uh, all your all your insight on REH and, and all that stuff. Um, I, I wanted to follow that up by asking you, you know, about something uh, more contemporary. You know, back in the spring, you were a very enthusiastic, a very early booster. First got to post about it online, uh, actually, of the idea of the sort of recent resurgence of Howard Andrew Johnson's term there, New Age Sword and Sorcery. Like at least six weeks, I think, if not more. Uh, before I, somebody said to, you know, hey, Oliver, do an anthology. And I was like, screw you, I'll do a magazine. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, see, at, at the time, you were actually trying to compile a document. Yes, it, I, it began as an ill-advised uh, manifesto, which is a dangerous word. But I just was like, i, I got to put all this together in something. And then eventually it, it morphed Let me I will reveal a little secret to you. Go for it. One of the reasons I posted is you were entering the shit or get off the pot territory. <laughs> yeah. So you were dragging out the wanting to define. And I remember telling myself, I'm just sitting there, I'm like, I can see this. I've, I've seen this before in my life. I can see it. Let me give you a nudge. <laughs> and so I figure I have a blog, you have a, a post. So. Well, it works, yeah, because you wrote your post, and then I was like, "Oh, Jesus, shit! Now it's out there. I gotta, I gotta do something." And so, I, like, my my first scrabble was that blog post that you so kindly let me uh, put up on your site, and uh, that was a good reference point for yeah. quite a while before I got to the point of the the magazine and the website for that and everything. And now it's a bit more, you know, defined as I as I. But you kind of you kind of uh, yeah. moved forward. You were, I saw you dithering a lot. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, I was reluctant to take ownership because, you know, it's Howard's term. I also wanted everybody to get in on it, but I guess somebody's got to put a foot forward first. And you saw that and gave me the... the and Howard was, you know, Howard, I don't think Howard minded one bit that you took. Well, I talked about it with him. You know, I, I got his blessing yeah, for see? the magazine, yeah. as you can imagine. It's partly why he uh, is in it. I wanted people to see him in it and have him yeah. tell you, you know, its origin. That was very important to me. Yeah, Howard's a good dude. Uh <laughs> He's probably one of the most uh, genial people I've ever met. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was very lucky. Actually, he was in Toronto just a few weeks ago, and uh, we managed to connect for coffee and just hang out for a bit in the afternoon. And uh, yeah, it was it was confirmed everything I suspected from uh, talking on the phone once or twice and, and uh, online interaction. He, yeah. He's I met him in person once at a Ren Fair. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, what's funny? We used to joke about this. Okay, we have the same editor. We ha or we did when he was still at St. Martin's. We have the same agent. His wife's name is Shannon. My wife's name is Shannon. And we've never been seen in the same spot. <laughs> until the Ren Fair. Yep. Until the Ren staged. <laughs> and I think there's only one photo of us. So but we used to have some fun with that about nobody's ever seen us in the same building. <laughs> Was it was it the Howard connection that made it appeal to you? They want to get in there and boost it early, or what was it about the whole New Age Thorns Mystery idea that uh, not that we no, no. dwell in it? And I don't want to talk about my magazine. But I want to talk about the idea uh, as it was earlier, and that made you. I thought the idea it had a lot more merit than some of the stuff I've seen out there. You know, we're in a pretty much a shitty time period, <laughs> and there's there's a lot of negativity, and taking something that so many people love. And that so many people could love if they can get past the bugbears of the last century. Mm -hmm. That just that appeals to me to no end. 
<laughs> and getting more people reading it, writing it, just talking about it, you know, because it, it's one of those genres that it is universal. You know, it's so versatile. There's hardly anything outside of a few hardcore epic fantasy tropes that you can't do with sword and sorcery. It works well when a historical, it works well in a secondary world, you know, works well male, female, every shade of gender in between. You know, it works well with everything so long as the writer both remembers the roots and has maybe a different place to go. Yeah. We don't want to rehash a lot of the... Just... Howard was the same age as my parents. Yeah. My parents were some of the least racist people I knew, but they still had their racism. You know, I never saw a person of color in my house, but... I have stories of my dad going toe-to-toe with the local clan oh, wow. and shaming them into going and cleaning up a site where they had burned a cross and basically telling them if they didn't, I'm going to go tell your grandfather and he's going to beat the crap out of you <laughs> because he was with the grandfather in World War II. Oh, <laughs> and sure enough, they went and did it. But I never saw a person of color in my house when I was growing up. There was none in our neighborhood. You know, my parents weren't casually racist. They were just systemically racist. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. I mean, we, we, we don't, I don't yeah. think we need to go too deep on this. As you say, it's, it's a very well-trod territory. And at the end of the day, I, I feel like I think people who uh, are not uh, white fellows like us, it's, it's not a bad idea to give them a heads up before they read yeah. certain classic tales. I mean, obviously, Shadows of Zambula. You know, because uh, it affects, you know, people differently depending on where they're standing, you know, uh, at the intersection of identity when they read things. I don't think that's um, weenie to, yeah. <laughs> to do. It's considerate. But at the same time, I also don't think there's a lot to be learned by hyper-examining, the, as you say, sort of period racism, essentially, of, of uh, Robert E. Howard. You know, especially when standing right beside him is someone who was exceptional for his period. Oh, yes. So, you know, there's, there's, a, there's an easy contrast there between the, the someone who was of their age and someone who was uh, yeah. exceptional. Uh, and at the end of the day, like, yeah, I, I really like what you said about uh, a minute ago about seeing New Edge and, and the idea of um, knowing the classics, but having something new to take, them, a new direction to take them. And that's kind of a big part of why, uh, you know, we made the logo for the magazine, that sort of Janus faced battle axe, because I was like, yeah, I, I think you need to be looking both ways yeah. uh, in, in a funny kind of fashion. You don't need to be... Um, change to the old tales but yeah. know what you're building on if you want to be part in a tradition and take now see it when i was coming up as a writer you know we didn't have you know we didn't have the internet you know didn't have newsletters didn't have blogs nothing like that so there were a few articles in some of the trade magazines like uh Writer's Digest, things like that. And that is some of the advice that they always gave, especially for genre. You need to read the genre you plan on writing in and know what's been done. You know, there was a time when you could read everything that came out in a month. And a lot of people did, and they wrote reviews of it. So it was easy to find what's selling now, what's, you know, what people have done, the notable works of whatever subgenre you identify with and it's the same thing now you know yes the genre all shades of fantasy have gotten monolithic there's no way to read everything that comes out anymore but you can still know the basics of what people are doing what they've done and where the room to grow might be you know where other stories can fit in well i think that's one of the joys and one of the uh there's a, there are a lot of feelings I I had when I was like okay I'm gonna do this magazine 
where I felt like, um, right before, right before when I committed to writing my novel, where I just felt like there's a lot of opportunity to be had with sword and sorcery yeah. still. And one of those reasons coming off of what you're saying is that, you know, it took some effort. And certainly I was very fortunate that I lived near a speculative fiction archive where they have like basically one of everything. But, you know, I read quite rigorously over the last few years. And at this point, of course, there's still, you could, you could list for probably a half hour, how many, you know, one by one sword and sorcery books yeah. I have not read. And yet... I feel like I've read enough. You know, I, I actually kept a tally. I've read about a hundred. I, I know well enough. I'm not going to write a book about it, but I know well enough, you know, Conan, Elric, Baffin Grey Mouse, or Jarell, you know, uh, so on and so forth. Amaro, like I just, all, all kinds yeah. of names uh, and adjacent names, you know, Andre Norton, sort of sort of planety stuff. Yeah, I, I feel like if I can't write a sword and sorcery novel at this point, the problem isn't that I didn't study. True. Uh, yeah. The other problem. But I feel like I did the study. And I think that's kind of cool that I was able to, you know, again, I had a special, I had a big advantage in my neighborhood. But nonetheless, you know, you can pick up a lot of stuff online and through secondhand bookstores and so on. I think it's still very attainable for someone to achieve a pretty solid understanding of the genre's history and feel well-versed in it without having to spend their entire life reading it. Uh, you know, Howard Andrew Jones himself has said, you know, especially if you want to stick to like the really good stuff, you can, yeah. you can read that, you know, in a, in a reasonable period. Uh, and then and then build on that and take it off to the to the stars. Whereas to try to do that with fantasy more broadly, you know, good luck. This is one of the things I like about Howard, uh, Howard Andrew Jones. You know, he's read everything, I guess, conceivable that interests him in sword and sorcery. So he started branching out into the things that inspired sword and sorcery writers. Yes, yes, yes. And so that takes his stuff to an entirely different level of what someone who may not you know, follow Westerns. You know, sword and sorcery is a Western with a sword. It often is. Or uh, hard-boiled uh, detective stories as yep. well come to mind. If only for the amount of times that Conan's gotten clocked on the back of the head as a scene transition, but uh, other more subtle things as well. I even had to do that in my pastiche. I had to make sure he get clocked on the head. It's a tradition. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I, 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 I am loving this, but I, I want to make sure we have time sure. for some of the other questions I wanted to get into with you. Because, uh, for example, one thing is uh, you've recently tried self-publishing for the very first time with uh, these, you know, uh, short novellas that you've, you've put out, including a, a yeah. Grimnir tale. Uh, how are you finding it so far? This is very new. This is like what? Six oh, weeks less, less, less than that. It's like three weeks, maybe. The best analogy I can come up with. It's like you're selling newspapers and you've got your stack of newspapers and you're, you're barking, but there's nobody in Grand Central Station. <laughs> you're just there yelling in the void. I don't know how a lot of these people... Well, actually, I do know how they do it. In order to make money self-publishing, you have to have money to spend on self-publishing. I get it. I, I understand that's how these people do it. Uh, but when you don't have... When your budget is belly button lint and you know, a handshake, there's no way to do it. Yeah. There is no avenue anymore that's not monetized to get the word out to people. I had great responses on, like, Twitter and Facebook. Then the algorithm choked them off. Yeah. And if you don't pay the algorithm, the algorithm won't let people see it. I had some, some pretty decent interaction on Reddit, but... I guess they've figured there's a, a whiff of self-promotion, so they pulled the, the post. Oh, this is on our yeah, fantasy, yeah. I assume. I mean, there's like a million-something people there, so that's the so that's a prime, prime location to get the word out. But if there's even just a hint of self-promotion, the moderators will toss it in the bin. And 
I don't know. Certain people can do it, and I guess they, I don't know how they do it, but they, their posts get through. But unless you spend a whole lot of time hanging out at our fantasy, they won't let it go through. Yeah, and that's the part I find very tricky. You know, I've really enjoyed becoming active on Whetstone, and as I've said you know, before on this very show, the, the magazine wouldn't have happened without it. And outside of the magazine, I built relationships that I think will be beneficial to me when my novel's ready to go. Like, I definitely feel like, yeah, this is this is benefiting me. This is great. Plus, just lovely friendships have come out of it. But then I looked at our fantasy, and I was like, okay, I should be promoting on there. And then it's like, I don't have time to be active. You know, this is the generic advice you see a lot, right? Which is like, oh, try and be active on the place before you post there. Even I mean, our slash fantasy has it codified in their moderation rules or whatever. But even so beyond that, just everywhere, you're supposed to be active yeah, everywhere. It's... And it's like, there's not enough hours in the day. It's foolishness. Uh, so I, I, I try not to throw up my hands and, and just get exasperated because I feel like, well, okay, let's just keep experimenting and find something. Yeah. Once the... Once the algorithms throttled that, I went from, you know, 10 or 15 sales a day to nothing. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess I'm guessing part of that must have been Facebook too, right? Because Facebook is, it went from being a decent place to promote to, you know, I do it. I promote this very yeah. uh, show on there, but I don't expect miracles because of how it works, especially coming off yeah. of your own page, right? If you're going around the houses of the various Facebook groups and sharing there is fine, but then None of those Facebook groups have anything even approaching. I don't know what happened with the with r slash fantasy becoming the place. I'm not aware of any other community that has even uh, a five digit yeah. following. You know, the lar there's one or two that have four digit followings. Most well, of them our books. Uh, no, no, it's not one or two. They're they're our yeah, books has twenty are. million. Well, yeah, books yeah. at large. Yeah, holy cow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for yeah. fantasy and its subgenres, it seems to be ninety eight percent r slash yeah. fantasy and a scattering of little dudes. And it's. So it seems also, I mean, I know a lot of these self-published authors. I know there are private Facebook groups where they get together and plan their their campaigns. I used to belong to one. Then they realized I'm not self-published at the time, and I think I got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, dude, I'm, I'm getting all this good information. But uh, yeah. so it, it's the Internet is just clickish. It's it's the high school lunchroom. And if you don't belong to the right click, it's really hard to get any traction. I wouldn't want to self-publish an entire book now, you know, after seeing this. Yeah. Pretty much I have enough. I have probably 40 to 50 hardcore fans on Facebook that will buy something if I put it for sale. And after that, after that 40 or 50 that see my posts, nobody sees them. Thank God for that 40 or 50 because... <laughs> That's that's pretty much yeah. what happened with this. Is basically the same people that I see liking my posts bought the stuff, the the stories, and they bought you know various one of them. They might buy one, they might buy all three, they might just buy this one. That's fine. You don't have to buy all three. That's why I broke them up like that. But it's it's the same people that I've seen every single time if I post something. The same likes are the same people that buy it. So I know I'm yeah. yeah you're I only going to a certain amount yeah, of people. Yeah, and like you're grateful for the oh, yeah. followers you have, but of course you want more. And then you get all this advice that also kind of feels almost designed to annoy the followers you have, which is like, you know, bug them to, you know, like and subscribe, yeah. you know, bug them join to tell TikTok. about the thing. Well, yeah, join. Yeah, I that's have a whole got, other thing. I've and, got uh, the face for radio, so I'm not going to TikTok. Yeah, wow. Well, I mean, first of all, not everybody wants to make videos, like, you know, and, and or is comfortable making videos exactly as you're saying. And like, um, 
Oh god, again, like making TikTok videos all the time is ridiculous. Plus, it doesn't also okay. Look, I I, I can <laughs> easily spend the next hours talking about this, and in fact, it is my my mission to get people eventually on here whose job is promoting books and talk to them about it. So, so I'll, I'll put it on the shelf for now. But it sounds like you're running into a lot of the same issues that a lot of people do. Uh, but at least you know you gave it a whirl, and you you learn something from yeah. doing that. Why don't we ride out to the at the end of this chat here? by talking about you had a, a nice traditional publishing win lately, signing a two book deal with Bain Books as part of their push on the whole sword and sorcery front. If I remember correctly, it's essentially them uh, rescuing your medallion press books, right? Like Men of Bronze and Memnon. And you're going to be writing a uh, mythic edition, I believe yes. you called it, uh, update uh, of, of Men of Bronze. What can you tell us about how you know, all this happened? Yeah, they, they, so Bain Books has acquired the ebook rights for now and the possible print and audio rights uh, for Men of Bronze and Memnon. So I'm getting the files ready to send to them, and uh, I'm sitting there reading for the first time in years Men of Bronze. I'm like, I could do this so much better, so I opened up a file and I start rewriting it. <laughs> and it's like, holy crap. So I, I had talked a lot to Sean Korsgaard. So I sent the file. I'm like, dude, I'm going to let me let me run this by you before I go to your boss. <laughs> I want to rewrite this. I want to rewrite this as a as a new book. And he's like, dude, send that to her. <laughs> so I send it to uh, uh, Tony. Uh, and for the life of me now, I can't remember her last name. You'll have to edit that part out. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's, it's uh, OK. So I sent that to her, and she's like, yeah, I mean, it's not part of the this particular deal. It will have to go through their editing process, editorial process. But yeah, they're like all for that. They're like, and it, it takes Men of Bronze back to its fantasy tradition, because it started as a Conan novel. Right. So, so is that, part, aside from uh, taking advantage of, uh, you know, these many more years of you getting better at what you do, is, is it about, you know, making it more of a sword yes, and sorcery novel? Yes, it will become it? a sword and sorcery novel set in Egypt. and. Okay. I've gotten the first couple of chapters rewritten. There was a lot of, when I first wrote it, uh, in several places I wrote myself into a corner because I was pantsing the whole thing. This was before I learned how to to, to do the plotting. Wait, so no, no outline, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Uh, well, there was a, a three note cards, four note cards, okay. with each section that I wanted to write. And as I would write, I would fill up a notebook with uh, clippings from magazines, from photocopies from books from the library, notes that I would find uh, in different things. So I had a notebook sitting next to me with my research in it, and I'd sketch out places where I wanted action to take place, but I had no idea where the story was going. So chapter one, I write the largest plot hole. You could have driven a truck through this, <laughs> where the enemy, the, the villain, decides to explain his entire plan in a letter that comes from Persia, and they happen to intercept it. I'm like, they didn't use letters like that. They didn't have, you know, <laughs> hi, I'm the bad guy, and this is what I plan to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to take care of that and several other mammoth plot holes. And Bane's like, yeah, that's fine. And then, you know, when I start to write original Sword and Sorcery, they're like, we get first dibs. <laughs> Though actually my oh, okay. previous publisher gets first dibs, or my current publisher gets first dibs. St. Martin's. Martin's yeah. right? The next yeah. thing I write, they have the right of first refusal. Hopefully, I don't know. When I'm finished with Grimner, I start in 
finishing a novel about Shavadis the Thief from Black Colossus for Titan. If they don't take it, if for whatever reason they read it and they don't like it, then all of that IP gets stripped out. It becomes a fantasy novel of sword and sorcery, and then somebody else gets it. So, and and then after that, I I actually got a couple of ideas for books that I think Bane would like them. It will depend, but I. I just came off of a four-book contract. I am not doing another four-book contract. <laughs> Give me one or two books at a time, and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, because, I mean, I guess, yeah, it comes down to the whole thing where I, it's not hard to see how it would be onerous to be to you know tied to four or five books, whatever, at the same publisher. At the same time, I, I know a lot of authors would say, oh, nice problem. It is a nice stability. problem. It, well, uh, it's stability in yeah. the fact that you don't have to go hustle for the next publisher, but there's no stability in the fact that they paid you 15 years ago. Yeah. And you pretty much don't get anything else unless you hit certain benchmarks, which I have not hit. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a household name. I'm not a, you know, they I sell okay, but I don't sell great. Well, and certainly it sounds like, uh, I, I you know, life got in the way. And bless there. them, they could have just dumped me and gone on about their business. And there would have been nothing I could have done. But they stuck by me, so I mean, God bless them. So, so this is, I think, I think this is very exciting, right? Now, it is. It is with, with, with you know Metabron's Memnon and, and whatever. I still would after. like somebody to back up a money truck to me and just dump me, you know, bury me in money. <laughs> just, just keep handing over sacks with dollar signs until somebody feels embarrassed about the whole. And thing. I don't yeah. embarrass easy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we'll have to figure that out. But nonetheless, it's you know, I'm not saying all problems are solved and everybody rides off into the sunset, but I think this is a lovely note to be playing right now and certainly a lovely note to end this interview on. Here we go. Uh, if people want to learn more about you and keep up to date on all things Scott Odin, where should they find you online? ScottOden.wordpress.com. That is the central hub of Scott. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got links to all your I social do. media on there, right? You know, I'm not as active on Twitter anymore. Then I got Facebook, uh I have an author Facebook page, and but you can always hit up Whetstone Discord, and I'm always lurking around there somewhere. All right, take a shot. We uh, push the Whetstone Discord. On. <laughs> Whetstone uh. Discord. <laughs> oh, I love it. I just feel like increasingly like God. I gotta get more guests on here that I didn't find for the Whetstone <laughs> Discord. <laughs> oh well, what can I say? It's, it's the a, place it's to a be. Place. It's, it's a hip and happening joint. Oh, yeah. All right, Scott. Thank you ever so much. I can't wait, you know, to see what the Mythic Edition of Bronze is like. I'm dying to read that well, thank and everything else you've got coming down the pipe. Thanks for spending time with well, me. Thank really you for having it. me on. It's it's been this is one of the better podcasts. <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> All right, man. Good night. So I'm writing a novel. Features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns, and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to so I'm writing a novel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. For now, oh, Mr. Musk, please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to so I'm writing a novel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. Thanks for hanging out with me and Scott, and I'll see you soon.